0: Alright, right, First John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For those of you who are here, and even for those of you who are watching, I invite you to stand, if you are able, as we read God's Word. First John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves The Father also loves the one born of Him. This is is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey His commands. For this is what love for God is. To keep His commands. And His commands are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And I've tagged this sermon this morning, The Joy of Obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be obedient. Help us to love you and savor Jesus and live lives that seek to honor him in everything that we do. God, we believe that you are a faithful God who will fulfill your promise that when we are obedient, there is joy and joy abundantly. Help us to see that in the text this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help me, Father, by your Spirit's power to preach the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The joy of obedience. And by way of an illustration, let me, let me give you a, a football story real quick. Some of you, by me just saying that, are like, ugh, but, but bear with me here, okay? You know, there's a man named Roger Staubach. He was the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys from, 16, or from 1969. He didn't play in 1690. He didn't do that. In, uh, in, 16, in 1969 to 1979, Roger Staubach was quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. He was nicknamed Captain America. Uh, by those who were watching, because at the time, uh, Dallas was uh, America's team. Some people still claim now. but I don't think they're America's team anymore. But he was called Captain America, by those by those who were watching, but he was called Roger the Dodger by those he played against because of his incredible ability to scramble, to run around back there behind all those big guys when pressure was getting to him. And Staubach had an incredible career. He attended the U.S. Naval Academy where he won uh, the 1963 Heisman Trophy. And after graduation, he actually served in the U.S. Navy, including a tour of duty in Vietnam. Staubach joined Dallas in in 1969, and he played with the Cowboys uh, during all 11 seasons of his career. He led the team to the Super Bowl five times, and four of which as the starting quarterback. He led the Cowboys to victories in Super Bowl VI and Super Bowl twelve. and Staubach was named the most valuable player of Super Bowl VI, becoming the first of four players to win the Heisman and the Super Bowl MVP, at least at the time. Listen, Staubach was good at what he did, but what made him even better was the coach that he played under. <clears throat> you see, Tom Landry, and those of you who are football fans know the name Tom Landry. Tom Landry coached the Dallas Cowboys from 1960 to 1988, 28 years. And football fans know this guy as a brilliant football coach. And even Staubach said that when it came to football, Landry, uh, that Landry had, quote, a, a genius mind. But nevertheless, Staubach struggled. See, here's the reason he struggled, because even though Staubach considered Coach Landry to have a genius mind when it came to football strategy, Staubach had this bout with pride in which he thought he should be able to run the team as he saw fit. You see, Landry wouldn't let Stahlback do what many coaches do and give the quarterback liberty to change the play at the line. Uh, Coach Landry would only allow Staubach to change it in emergency situations, and then Staubach had to defend his decision to the coach who called in a different play. And so Staubach had a decision to make, and he recognized this. He acknowledges this. The decision that he had to make was, was would he allow his pride to rule his decision-making and ignore the coach, or would he trust the coach, trust his genius mind, and play his role? You know, Staubach was later asked about that dilemma that he faced, and he said this, quote, I faced up to the issue of obedience, and once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. And to a large degree in our text this morning in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5, John is making the exact same claim. That if we as Christians can learn the beauty of obedience, the joy of obedience, we will find in our relationship with God, harmony, fulfillment, and victory. We will find a joy that is indescribable. And I know that when I said the title, The Joy of Obedience, and when you heard that we were talking of of obedience, some of you uh, immediately got a little antsy. Sometimes I get a little antsy when people say, we're just going to talk about being obedient. And the reason we get a little antsy is because we think we're going to hear some legalistic message, right? We think we're just going to get a message about all we can and can't do. And, And many times I've heard the response from people, well, listen, we don't need to talk about obedience and all that stuff because Christianity isn't about rules. It's about a relationship. Anybody ever heard that? Christianity is not about rules, it's about a relationship. And and while I agree with that sentiment, every relationship that you have has parameters in which you have to work. Just because you're in a relationship, it does not mean there are not rules that determine the parameters of that relationship. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Some of you in this room are married. Uh, you're, You're in a marriage relationship. I'm married. As of this morning, I'm married. You know, my wife and I were coming up on 10 years. Uh, Friday will be 10 years of marriage for us. It's our, it's our anniversary. And I was reflecting on that. And, and I was reflecting even on the vows that I said to my wife on that day. Because at our wedding, this is what I said to Aaliyah I said, I vow to love you as Christ loves the church, willing to give myself up for you, to provide for you and delight in you, to stand by you through every trial. And blessing as our sovereign God sees fit to allow for our sanctification. To trust you and to care for you as we grow together in Christ. And listen to me. Those were not just some cute words that I said to take up space in a ceremony. These are the parameters in which I agreed to be obedient. They are the guidelines that help establish the relationship that we are in. And I don't see them as merely a list of rules to follow, but they are the things that protect our relationship. They are the parameters I'm allowed to operate in. Now let me go out and while out in the streets for a minute, okay? Let me fail to be obedient to what I said I would do and see how that relationship goes. Let me give you another example because some of you are like, well, I'm not married. Some of us have jobs. Some we get paid for and some we don't. Amen? I see you stay at home, moms. I see you. For many of us, with the job comes a job description. Perhaps you, you do or you have experienced what I do with my employees. I not only show them the job description, but I have them actually sign the job description to tell me that they understand that we are entering into a work relationship and there are parameters around that relationship. They understand the parameters by which I will evaluate their work and our work relationship. Now listen, if you go to your job and you start whiling out at your job refusing to do what they pay you for, I will be expecting the call asking if I know of any places that's hiring right now. Let me give you one more example for some of you younger folks who are here. Those that are not married, those that perhaps are not yet working. You are in a relationship with your parents or your caregivers. You're in a relationship with them just by nature of you being the child and them being the adult, them being the parent, them being the caregiver. Nevertheless, there are rules that your parents establish for you. Maybe it's chores. Maybe it's a curfew. Maybe, it's, maybe you have some house rules. And these rules are established to help you understand and live faithfully in the relationship that you are already in. Your, your parents' rules, your caregivers' rules don't make you their child, but they help you understand how you live in and function in this relationship. And if you start wiling out in the home, as someone who has experienced it and done it, the relationship does not go well. And see, what I'm trying to get you to see is that because you are in a relationship, because you are in a relationship with Jesus and you are walking in this relationship, it doesn't mean that there are not rules that determine the parameters of that relationship. And the problem, and hear me with this, the problem with so many Christians is that some of us are trying to while out, With Jesus, some of us want to act toward Jesus like we would never act towards our spouse, like we would never act towards our job, like we would never act in our familial relationships. We want all the benefits of being in the relationship without the parameters. We want all the blessings without the commitment. We want eternal life, but we want to live this life however we want. And it goes back to that age-old problem that so many Christians want Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. But what John wants us to see in this text, why he's writing this, is he wants us to see that obedience matters, that if we are going to live the true Christian life, then obedience matters. And obedience and faith, John's going to make the case that they are inseparable. We just have to hold them in their proper place. But what John is also communicating is that through obedience, we will have great joy. So John's going to talk to us a little bit about obedience, and, and I've pulled out four truths that we see about obedience from this text, uh, and, and I want to work through those. So here's, here's the first truth that we see about obedience. Obedience flows out of faith. Obedience flows out of faith. Look again at verse 1. Start with the beginning of verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And, And notice this. Notice where John starts. He doesn't start with works. He doesn't start with your obedience. He starts with faith. He says that if you believe Jesus is the Christ, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you believe that Jesus has done what he says he did, ultimately, if you believe the gospel, if you believe that your sin separates you from God and that there is nothing that you can do to reconcile yourself to God, if you understand that your sin deserves death, that God ought to destroy you, but, but you see and you believe that God has loved you so much that He sent Jesus to die on the cross so that you might have eternal life. And Jesus, Jesus lived perfectly in this world. He died, he died the death of a sinner, though He was not one, and He took on Himself all the sin of this world, and He was crucified and buried, and three days later, He raised from the dead to declaring victory and offering hope and salvation, if you've placed all that you have in that truth, if if you are basing your standing with God off of what Jesus has done, then what John wants us to see is that you have faith and you are justified. It's over. You are in Christ. You are born of God. If you believe in this Jesus... And you have faith, and if you have faith, you are a child of God, and your status is secure in Him. And this goes back to what John already said in chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And I love this part. And we are. At this moment, right now, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are God's children. We have been born of God. And so the moment we place our faith in Jesus, the words of Galatians 4, 4 through 7 becomes our family story. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Listen to this. This is our family story right here. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. And all of this, because of faith in Jesus and nothing else. Ephesians 2, 8, nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. We are in Christ, not because we do everything right. We are in Christ, not because we can be obedient perfectly. We are in Christ because God in His kindness has given us life and made us something we otherwise could not be, a child of God. But but then look at what John says at the end of verse 1. He says, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Now at first glance, it may may sound like John is saying that if you love God, then you love Jesus. But that's not the the, the, the one born of him that John is talking about. See, when John is speaking of the one born of him, John is actually talking about the other people who have placed their faith in Jesus who are also children of God as well. John is continuing this theme that, that, that if we love God, we will love people. But what I want you to see is that this verse come, in this verse there's a progression that's taking place. There's a reason that John started with being born of God first, having faith first, then the command to love. Because what John understands is that the only way we can be obedient to God is if we are first a child of God obedience flows out of faith. That's why Paul writes those words that that there is just weight behind him at the end of Romans when he said that anything done outside of faith is sin. And what Paul is arguing, what John is arguing, is that you cannot be obedient at all apart from Jesus. Why? Because true obedience always flows out of your faith. We can never love like the God who is love if we are not first united to that God because even as John said a few verses earlier we love because he first loved us our obedience flows out of faith but that's not the only thing that John's communicating here's the second truth that I want you to see not only does obedience flow out of faith but this is very important obedience is defined by God obedience is defined by God look at verse 2 He says, this is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey His commands, which commands? All of His commands. This is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey His commands, obedience is defined by God. So so let me tell you what I mean, what I'm getting at when I say that. Our obedience, it flows out of our faith. In other words, we can now be obedient because of, the fact that we are in Christ, and the fact that His Spirit dwells in us and empowers us for obedience. But it does not mean that we get to determine what obedience looks like. It doesn't mean we get to determine what faithfulness looks like. God gets to determine obedience, and we see this even in our text. God has given a command to love, right? Love other brothers and sisters. Love those born of God well. He expects us to be obedient. But again, what I want you to see is we don't get to determine what that love looks like, what obedience looks like in terms of loving other people. We don't get to define the terms of what constitutes obedience and what does not. That's what John's getting at in this verse, because God is giving the conditions of loving well. He not only gives the commands, but he gives the conditions. He's telling us how to be obedient. So so what does he say? He says, this is how we love God's children. Here it is, when we love God and obey his commands. And so what John is basically saying is that if you want to love well, if you want to be obedient, there are two things that have to happen. This is important. If you want to be obedient to God, there are two things that have to happen. First, you have to love God above everything else. You have to love God more than anything else. And second, you cannot forsake any of the other commands or expectations. That's what obedience requires. A desire to be obedient, it flows first out of a love for God, but also a knowledge of what God says is righteous. And I want you to get it. Those two things are essential. You cannot be obedient without a proper love for God and a proper understanding of what it is that He's called us to. Because here's what happens, right? If we love God but we don't know what it is that he says is righteous and good and holy, we will most likely end up loving a God that we've made up in our mind. We're loving a God that doesn't exist because we don't really know anything about him or what he expects of us. But then on the flip side, and I think a lot of Christians can fall into this category, honestly, if we don't have a love for God, but we know what Scripture says, we just turn into Pharisees at that point. We're just checking off a list of boxes. We're doing it because it's what we're supposed to do. It's what we have to do. It's what we're told to do. We're not doing it because we love God and see Him as good and see Him as righteous and see Him as holy. And so both of those things have to mesh together for obedience to take place, a genuine love for God, for who He is, and the fact that He has loved you first and simultaneously an understanding of what the Bible tells us is what, that is righteous and good and holy. And there's a lesson for us in that even when we consider our call to love one another and what it looks like to be obedient to that call. Because, because I've just got to be honest with you. Right now, the world is telling us what love looks like. The world is telling us how we should love and how we should approach it. But, but like what Dr. Van Ness says, and I think he sums it up well when he says, Listen, we are not loving others well when we disobey God for them or encourage them to be disobedient in any way to God's command. And he says, this cuts right across our culture's idea that loving someone requires one to affirm whatever that person does. And we need to be reminded of this, church. Because we live in a world where love is viewed as a commendation of whatever a person does or whatever a person thinks. In the world's eyes, love means never challenging, never disagreeing, always affirming the life and choices of everyone else. I shouldn't have to convince you of this. We see it when it comes to the issue of marriage. We see it when it comes to the issue of politics. We see it across the board. It is not a popular decision to stand on the word of God and say, no, 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 no. I love you, but this is not true. This is not right the way that you are living. This is not honoring to God with the choices that you are making. I mean, let's just call it what it is, right? The hot button issue of our day is the issue of, of, of gay marriage. The issue of trans rights and the issue of all these things. And I want you to hear me as clearly as... I want to be as clear as I possibly can. Someone who struggles with homosexuality, a transgender person, is worthy of love and respect and dignity and honor because they too are made in the image of God. They do not deserve discrimination. They do not deserve hate. But I want you to hear me say this. We cannot affirm that lifestyle as Christians. We cannot act like God is okay with that. It's not because we don't like it, it's because God said it's not okay in His Word. He said that it is sin. And so some of us, right, we're on one side of the paradigm. Some of us are speaking the truth without love, and some of us are trying to love without speaking the truth. And it doesn't work that way. And it's not popular. I have been called a a bigot many times. I really don't think I'm a bigot. I think I believe the Word of God and I want to be obedient to it and I want to love people well, but the most loving thing to do is not to let people stay in their sin and think they're okay. And you might not agree with me, but the only thing that I would offer up to you is the reminder that obedience is defined by God. And you can disagree with me, but but ultimately, if I'm trying to stand on this, you're going to have to figure out which part of this book you want to take out. It's not popular, but it's loving. Obedience is defined by God. You may be thinking, okay, I get it, fine, I'll do it, I'll be obedient, I will force myself to do it. Well, I, I don't really want you to think like that. And neither does John. See, I want you to notice the third truth that he presents. Here's the third truth. So we've got that obedience flows out of our faith, that obedience is defined by God. But here's the third thing that John wants us to see. Obedience is not meant to be a burdensome task, but a life-giving pursuit. That's an important point, that obedience is not meant to be a burdensome task, but a life-giving pursuit. Look at verse 3. He says, for for this is what love of God is, to keep His commands. And then he adds this in and he says, and His commands are not a burden. His commands are not a burden. It's It's almost as if John anticipated people begrudgingly willing to be obedient. It's almost like he knew that that could happen. But what John is trying to communicate here is that, listen, the call to obedience is not meant to be a burden that you have to bear in your life. It is, it is meant to be a pursuit by which you live your life to the fullest here and now. Because remember what Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. That's not just in glory. That's here and now. And I think often we view obedience from the wrong perspective which is why we see it as a burden and not a life-giving pursuit, right? Because what we often do is we look at the world out there. Let me do it like this. We, we look at the world out there, okay? And we see our life out there. And we look at the Bible as the thing that is keeping us from parts of that life. But that's the wrong perspective. You see, the right perspective, the better approach, is to find your life in here, in this book, and see the world out there as the thing that's trying to keep you from that life. That's the proper perspective. Because, listen, everything out there is passing away. Everything out there is fading. Isaiah 48, the the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God remains forever. So if you're basing your life on the things out there, you're going to be like, the grass and the flower that withers and that fades. But, but when this becomes our life, when this defined our life, this is the thing that will stand eternal. And let me just tell you something. The world ain't got nothing for you. I mean, some of us are just chasing the stuff of the world, but we're just trying to sprinkle a little Jesus in on the side. But I want you to know that Jesus will never play the side chick. He won't do it. We are pursuing the flashy things and the money of this world and the fame of this world and the influence of this world and and we're satisfied with just trying to sprinkle a little Jesus in on the side. But that's not life. That's not abundant life. That's not a satisfying life. That is not a joy-filled life. Your life is not found out there. This world can't give you abundant life, but God can That's why Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, as he's responding to the temptation of Satan, that man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And God is so good, brothers and sisters, that after he spoke it, he wrote it down. But listen to me, I want you to hear me say this. When God calls you to do something, when God demands obedience, and please don't miss this. Oh, if we would internalize this, when when God calls you to do something, when God demands obedience, it is not because he is trying to keep you from good things. When God calls you to be obedient, when God says don't do that, when God says do that, he is not giving you commands to keep you from good things. It is because God knows with omniscient certainty what is for your good and what will lead to your destruction. Our God is not trying to be a burdensome God. Our God is a life-giving God. And a task, a call to be obedient, becomes burdensome. A call to, be, to obey becomes burdensome when we don't understand the purpose and the motivation behind it. I I'm I trying to think of a picture of this. I'm so glad that I have children, because I feel like children are just built-in sermon illustrations. They're always giving you something that you can use when you approach the Bible. Maybe that's why we're told to have a childlike faith, because we see some truth. Anyway, all right, never mind. Um, but I was thinking about this, that right, a, 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 a task becomes a burden when we don't understand the purpose and the motivation behind it. Let me give you an example. There have been times, I, like we're at, the, we're at the look both ways when you cross the street stage of parenting. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about. Like, like for some reason, that's the hardest thing for them to get. But, but our children at least have picked up that if they start running to the street and they hear mommy or daddy scream for them to stop, they typically don't respond like it's a burden because they've at least got the categories in their head that if mom and dad is yelling at me like that, it probably means there's a car coming and it's going to hit me. And so it's not much of a burden for them to stop, to pause, Because they know the intention behind it. They know with certainty that we're trying to keep them safe, that we are trying to protect them. We know what is for their good, and we know what is for their destruction. But there are other times when we tell our children something, we expect them to be obedient, and it seems like we just ask them to do the most impossible task in all creation. Like when we say, don't eat that cookie. Hardest task in the world for a child. Because what they don't understand, what they can't comprehend is that we're thinking beyond the cookie, right? We're thinking of the fact that they've already had enough sweets today. They, they got this treat because they were over at Nana and Papa's and they spoiled them so they gave them way too much sugar. And so now they're coming back and they want another cookie and all they're thinking about is the cookie that's right in front of them. But we're looking at the big picture saying, I know that if they eat any more sugar that they're going to have a stomachache. And I know what that stomachache is going to lead to and I don't really want to clean up that mess. So while we're still looking out for their good, we're still looking out for their best interest, they don't fully understand understand that and so they see it as a burden that's when we get the ah come on mom come on that's when we get the tears and and we get the arguments not always but sometimes Because they don't understand the motivation and the purpose behind it. But when they do, they respond appropriately. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that we've got to get in our minds this understanding that when God calls us to do something, He is doing something with a motivation and a purpose behind it because He knows what is good for us. He can see what we can't see. He is observing things we don't even know that are going on. And He is always fighting for the good of His children. And so the question becomes when we see some of God's calls on our lives as burdens, perhaps we need to take a step back and maybe consider what could it be that God is trying to do. What is He trying to protect me from? What is He trying to push me towards? Why is it that a good God would say no to this and yes to this? A task only becomes a burden when we don't understand the purpose and the motivation behind it. But I want to tell you, God always has a purpose and a motivation behind why He does what He does. And when we understand that God calls us to things that are always for our good, it will motivate us To remain obedient even when things get hard. And I just want to be the first to tell you, in case you haven't picked up on this, obedience can be really hard. Obedience can be really maybe it's just me. Anybody agree? Obedience can be hard. You know, some of you right now may be fired up to be obedient, right? Those three points were enough for you, those three truths. And you're going to walk out of this door. And probably before you even make it home from here, you will be challenged in your obedience. Maybe somebody's going to swerve in front of you. And Jesus said, let no unkind word come out of your mouth. Oh, you're going to be tempted to be disobedient. Maybe you get a phone call and someone is just annoying you. And you just want to hang up the phone. And God said that we got to be patient. And you're going to be tempted to be disobedient. It's not always easy. But here's the good news, and here's the fourth truth that I have for you this morning. Obedience is possible because of Jesus. Obedience is possible because of Jesus. Look at these last two verses this morning, beginning in verse 4. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And and this is really cool. I, I like how John writes this because in these two verses he says conquers the world three times. So first there in verse 4 everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. That word conquers is in the active present tense meaning you are now conquering the world. But then he says that this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And that conquered is written in the active aorist or the past tense. And then he comes back in verse 5 and he says, who who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. And again, this goes back to the active present tense. So what he does is he reminds them twice that they are now conquering but he also reminds them that they have already conquered. Why? Because of their faith. Now listen, John is not simply saying that they have conquered because they have any faith. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that they have conquered because of the one they have faith in. He already covered this in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. And here's why. Because... The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Let that sink in for a moment. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Church, we we have to get this. Y'all look a little sleepy this morning, but we, we have to get this. Yes, obedience is hard, but we are not operating from a posture of defeat. We are not trying to do this thing as if it all depends on us. We already have the victory. Why? Because Jesus is victorious. Because Jesus has conquered. He was obedient. He already won. And because we have placed our faith in Jesus, the same spirit that dwelt in him, the same spirit that raised him from the dead now dwells in us. You are not fighting a losing battle. Obedience is possible through the, po- the power of The Spirit. You know, there's a part of me that as I read this, there's a part of me that wonders if John hadn't already perhaps encountered what Paul wrote 30 years earlier in this little book of the Bible called Romans. Just in case you didn't know, John's epistles are likely the last books that were written chronologically in the New Testament. So Paul wrote Romans about 30 years prior, but I wonder if John hadn't maybe stumbled across it. He... Maybe he read what Paul says in Romans eight thirty seven. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And John thought, ooh, that's good. That's good. Maybe John thought, man, how is it that Paul can make that claim? And then John remembered, well, because of what he said before that in Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. And he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we know the battle is over, church. We know that we are not fighting for obedience from a losing posture. Jesus is a living, breathing testimony, one, to the fact that obedience is better. It's better than anything that this world has. It's better than anything that this world can offer. But he is also a testimony that we are victorious. We have already conquered. And for some of us, we got to stop acting like the world is stronger than our Savior. We've got to stop acting like the world is stronger than our Savior. We don't serve a weak king. We don't serve an elected God. We don't serve a ruler who needs armies and departments of defense to defend his power. We don't serve a politician who gets his power from a title given to him by others. And he does not possess power that can be taken away by anyone. Brothers and sisters, we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But let me, let me tell you who this king is just in case you forgot. He is a king who existed before time and space. He is a king who created everything in heaven and on earth. He is a king who permits anything that exists to exist. He is the king who created a good world and when this world rebelled against him, his power was not threatened. But I want to tell you, I want you to know that there is no king like this king. Because this is a king who did not hide in his throne room when things got rough in the kingdom. When the peasants couldn't get to the king, the king went to them. And he was born of a virgin. He lived among men. He was tempted and tried, yet never failed. He is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. And what a Savior he is. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was beaten, crucified, and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was put in a tomb meant for another, but he did not stay there. He fulfilled his own prophecy and got up after three days, conquering sin, conquering death, and conquering the grave. He has been seen by many and then he ascended into heaven. But I say all that because I want you to see how sure Jesus' victory is. Because after all that, Jesus went and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And God said, God the Father said to God the Son, the victory is yours. And God the Father said, Let me get you a footstool so you can lay back and sit. Because you've already won. And God the Father pulled up this footstool that we call the planet Earth. And Jesus propped his feet up on Earth. Because he knew what we often forget. That the battle is over. And Jesus won the victory. And brothers and sisters. What is his is ours. Because we are in Christ Jesus. Our King sits in heaven with his feet propped up on this earth. He ain't worried about it. He's not afraid he's going to lose his power. He's not afraid that his victory is not secure. And we are invited into that victory because when we place our faith in Jesus, everything that is his becomes ours. And so if he has the victory, we have the victory. So I can say, brothers and sisters, with utter confidence, in all things, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. And let me tell you, that king is a good king. That king is a matchless king. That king is a king who is worthy of our obedience. And the amazing thing is, brothers and sisters, that as we grow in in our obedience, as we fight for obedience, by the power that is ours through the Spirit, knowing the victory is won, we will find a joy that can never be taken away. Obedience to God can be hard, but it's worth it because there is joy in obedience.